Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we're joined by Dr. Roger Thomas in his new book, Counting Dreams, the Life and Writings of the Loyalist Nun Nomula Boto. It was published by Cornell University Press earlier this year. Uh, Dr. Thomas currently teaches and researches about Japanese literature at Illinois State University. This book looks into the writings, life story, and legacy of Nomura Boto, who was a Buddhist nun, writer, poet, and activist during Japan's Bakumatsu era, which is roughly between 1850 and uh, 1870. Through translations and analysis of her poems and diaries, Dr. Thomas illustrates the adventurous life of a complex woman during Japan's drastic changes towards modernization. So welcome, Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. You've written a lot about early modern Japanese poetry. So what do you research about right now and why does it interest you? Uh, well, ever since my dissertation, well, a long time ago, which was on uh, early modern poetry, um, that has been the focus of my of my research. Uh, most recently, I've I've uh, shifted a little bit toward uh, uh, philology, the the uh, the nexus between philology and poetry, poetics especially, and uh, also kotodama kotodama thought. I've uh, done some work on that as well. Interesting. Uh, do you remember what first interested you to uh, getting to studies of Japanese poetry? Uh, well, I'd have to credit uh, my um, uh, my dissertation director. <laughs> I had taken uh, several courses from her before in uh, uh, in graduate school, and uh, uh, I recall especially one seminar. Uh, where we we talked about some early modern poets, and I, I discovered I discovered poets like Akemi and Kotomichi, and I, I found them very fascinating because I had never uh, associated the early modern period with Waka poetry. You hear Waka poetry, and you think Heian period, you know. And so uh, I was it was an exciting discovery for me, and I went from there to to uh, look into poetics uh, and. Um, uh, sort of found my niche there, I guess. <laughs> nice. And the protagonist of our book today is Nomura Boto, a nun who lived in the first half of the 19th century around the Fukuoka area. What led you to this project? Well, uh, again, one of the uh, poets that I, I uh, focused on and, and, and uh, that... Uh, Okuma Kotomichi, who was also a, a native of Fukuoka and who was uh, Boto's teacher. Uh, and uh, I approached her through him, basically. Um, um, much of a chapter of, of my 2008 book is, is dedicated to Koto, Kotomichi and his poetry. And... Um, and I, I had studied his poetry and and uh, and written and published about it uh, uh, quite fairly extensively, and so I I knew of her through him, uh, and that's how I became acquainted with her. I, I approached her through her poetry, which is different from how most people approach her. They approach her through her political activism, and I kind of went the other route. But uh, uh, but I, I think that. Uh, uh many people are aware of her activism and her political activity and, and all that but they but actually she had a, a very solid uh, reputation regionally as a poet before she got involved in any of that so so it's important to keep that in mind as well yes that's a very interesting aspect in the book that we will return to later but um, as I covered very briefly in the introduction, um, Nomula Banto has a lot of identities. She's a nun, she's a writer, she's a poet, she's an activist. But um, all in all, 
who is she? What did she do? <laughs> well, uh, uh, she was from a middle-ranking uh, samurai family, and uh, when people think of the samurai, they think it's a it's a, a, a discreet class, and it, it is. But it uh, there were several ranks within the samurai caste, and and uh, she was in the middle rank, which was well above the lowly ashigaru, uh, but not as high as the uh, karo and and uh, and uh, ministers and things like that. But um, so her family commanded a, a fairly substantial stipend. Um, I think it was something like four hundred and some something. Well, anyway, it was a fairly it was a fairly uh, sizable stipend that they had, and and uh, uh, so she uh, uh, grew up in um, not extremely privileged uh, circumstances, but certainly not destitute either, and. Um, uh, and much of her life was typical of, of women of that period. Uh, women from her class typically went to uh, serve in the household of a higher uh, a higher family uh, to learn etiquette, to learn uh, manners, and and they also received instruction in in the uh, traditional arts. And she did that as well during her teenage years, uh, and then. Uh, uh, her um, her life course was a little bit different after that because uh, she had a brief marriage at the end of her teenage years, and it ended in divorce. And uh, uh, of course, the the conventional wisdom would have you think that a demodori from that period <laughs> would uh, face very bleak prospects of ever marrying again. But she did marry. She remarried fairly fairly soon and and had a, a very happy marriage and uh, uh, her she sh shared a passion for poetry with her husband they both studied under Kotomichi and uh, after he died uh, she became a nun took the name Boto uh, which means facing to the east uh, which uh, some people have read some uh, activism into that already because uh, she was facing east from Fukuoka, which could be either the capital or Edo. It could be either one. But uh, some people have tried to read some uh, activism into that. I'm, I'm really not convinced. I think that her activism really came a little bit later than that. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, she uh, traveled to Kyoto. Uh, and uh, met with various loyalists there, apparently. And uh, just when her radicalization began is is uh, difficult to pinpoint exactly, but it certainly was in place uh, when she started corresponding with Kuniomi and other loyalists in the area. And... Uh, uh, and uh, Takasugi Shinsaku st uh, stayed at her hermitage, and uh, at first unbeknownst to her, but uh, she went later went and visited him there, and uh, that became a major point in her conviction, uh, she, in her sentencing, that she had uh, given aid and and uh, uh, and put up uh, these dangerous factions and. And anyway, she was uh, she was arrested herself in in the uh, purge of eighteen sixty five, uh, a major purge in the domain, and um, and then she was uh, put under house arrest for several months, both at her uh, at uh, the uh, family home, the the Nomura family home. She was under house arrest there, and then she was transferred to. Um, uh, to her natal home, the Urano home. She was transferred to her her natal home, and it was there that she was uh, 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 sent for interrogation. Uh, she was uh, sentenced. She fully expected to be executed, as m uh, a good number of her uh, comrades were, but she was given the more lenient sentence of, of uh, banishment, uh, which 
wasn't really lenient, actually, because uh, she was confined to a single-cell prison on uh, the remote island of Himeshima. And uh, and then uh, Takasugi ar- uh, arranged for a band of men to come and... Uh, and uh, uh, break her out of her prison <laughs> and uh, spirited her away to uh, the Choshu domain where she spent the remainder of her years. And uh, so that's basically uh, the course of her life. I, I mentioned this to uh, uh, a, a few of the students in my class. They, they said, what's your book about? And I, I mentioned, to, I told them the basic story of, of Boto. And one of the students said, Gee, Sensei, that would make it. That would make a great uh, anime. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> and yeah, this all sounds very exciting and adventurous. Uh, what do we know? Need to know about the historical backgrounds of this time. Why? Why does she? Why does she have such a exciting life? Well. Uh, it, it's important to know the history of the Bakumatsu generally, of course, but, but more specifically the circumstances that led to the rise of loyalism or restorationism, or as it's known in, in Japanese, the sonno joi, those, uh, uh, those terms. And uh, uh, that was especially brought to a head by, by the arrival of uh, Commodore Perry, and uh, this put the uh, bakufu, the the shogunate, in the awkward position of of having to chart a course, steer a course between uh, appeasing uh, isolationist elements in the country, and at the same time having to deal with uh, with an evolving uh, global situation. And uh, uh, so, anyway. Uh, there, there is that. There's also uh, uh, you'd have to know a little bit about uh, the the intellectual foundation of loyalism, which had its uh, roots in in uh, in nativism and kokugaku, and and uh, I know that uh, Mark McNally insists that those are different entities, actually, uh, but. Um, uh, it's also important to understand the situation, the political situation in, in uh, uh, the Fukuoka domain in, in particular, uh, that uh, uh, the Toyama domain was, was one of, or not Toyama, Fukuoka. I keep, I keep thinking of my, where my wife is from, I'm sorry. Um, the, the Fukuoka domain, um, which was one of the most powerful uh, Tozama domains, and of course, the a lot of the Tozama domains had kind of uneasy relationships with the shogunate, but but with the uh, Fukuoka domain, it was a little bit different because they they played the role of a kind of hashiwatashi or middleman between the shogunate and the um, and the uh, Satsuma domain, where where there really were a lot of rebellious elements and. Uh, that was that came about partly because of marriage politics. Uh, the uh, uh, the Kuroda family of, of Fukuoka had married into into the um, uh, uh, into the shogunate line, and also uh, the uh, lord of the domain at that time uh, uh, was actually born a Shimada, which was from. Uh, Satsuma, and he was adopted. He was adopted into the Kuroda family and became its heir as a kind of Mukoyoshi, and so uh, that that put uh, uh, the Fukuoka domain in, in a kind of interesting position because uh, they they were able to be this middleman. But it also created difficulties for them because they uh, they had to try to uh, again. Uh, do a balancing act between the the um, uh, pleasing the staying on the good side of the shogunate and also not antagonizing their their satsuma relatives uh, and uh, that was uh, uh, Nagahiro who was who was Kuroda Nagahiro who was the domain lord at the time um, he actually had a kind of ambivalent relationship with loyalism for a long time. 
but uh, especially after uh, uh, the uh, first Choshu expedition, the punitive, punitive expedition, uh, he went all out against the loyalists then. And uh, that, that had uh, an ironic uh, um, result that, uh, unlike Choshu, a lot of uh, later Meiji leaders came from the Choshu domain, but hardly any of them came from, I don't think any of them came from the Fukuoka domain. That's probably because most of them were executed. <laughs> a lot of them were. And uh, uh, Boto was, um, was one of the survivors of the purges. And uh, I think that that's, um, that's one reason that, that she's kind of a local hero. And, and that's one thing, one factor maybe. Yeah, it's such a delicate situation that she was in. And just in case um, some of our listeners might not be familiar with the ge- geographical location of these domains, um, so Fukuoka domain was kind of between the, the, the capital and the southern domains from Kyushu, where um, the loyalists first started to um, riot against the uh, Bakufu armies. So that's something important to keep in mind. Um, you mentioned that um, Nomura was a dedicated waka poet. Um, apparently, she gained a considerable reputation for her waka poems. So at that time, how popular was waka learning in this region? And were there any differences from waka practices before this period? say, from the Han period, because we don't often see female waka poets until the um, early modern period. Is that correct? Well, uh, yes. Uh, actually, the, uh, uh, the area, the, the Hakata Fukuoka area, had a, a long uh, literary tradition that goes way back to the Manyoshu period. And so there had been a lot of... Uh, a literary activity there from early times, uh, but it there were no no real uh, regional distinct regional dis, dis, uh, differences stylistically until you get very close to the end of the the uh, early modern period, and then you have uh, uh, schools of poets like Kotomichi. Uh, uh, you see a great deal of vernacularization in their poetry. And, and from the beginning of the uh, early modern period, uh, there was this, this inexorable move away from court dominance of poetry. The, the uh, early modern period began with uh, almost total uh, monopoly of the art by, uh, by court poets. Uh, they they, they uh, insisted on maintaining certain secret practices, and, and they were the only teachers. They, they were the only ones who really got it. Uh, but more and more, that was, that was contested. It was contested, of course, by the, the rise of Kokugaku. And, uh, but more in, in, the, the, um, in the Fukuoka domain, in that area especially, uh, by poets like Kotomichi, this vernacularization. Who, he, he didn't give a hoot about uh, the, the court precedent. Uh, he, he didn't, but, and he didn't care for uh, uh, the uh, Kokugaku poets either. He really steered a maverick course. And uh, a lot of his poetry has been called haikai-like, or it's, it's very, it has much of the ambience of a haiku. And uh, that's one thing that I always found especially interesting about his poetry. And so, uh, uh, and that, that's part of a, a, a trend t- toward decentralization. Um, until the 19th century, there, there was what could be called a kadan, a, a establishment poets, establishment poetry, and, and, and dominant schools. But there was a movement away from that, especially toward the Bakumatsu period. No, nobody really cared about that anymore. And so that decentralization gave birth to, to uh, these distinctive styles like that. You also mentioned that the rise of nativist studies, or kokugaku, had profound influence on waka poetry towards the late Tokugawa period. So in what aspects did they differ 
in on on ways to write waka and why? Well, with the rise of nativism, there was, of course, they they uh, they rejected uh, any claim of of court prerogative in in waka composition. Uh, they they turned instead to uh, 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 pre-aristocratic models, the the Manyoshu in particular, and uh, and uh, so a lot of the uh, uh, styles of poetry that that arose out of that uh, used a lot of self-conscious archaisms. They 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 went back beyond the uh, the standard uh, Heian diction and lexicon and and went back to use. Um, archaic terms in their poetry that 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 were uh, very hard to understand a lot of them wrote in in uh, manyogana because they thought that made gave it more of a an ancient ambience uh, and uh, there was also uh, the rise of the uh, restoration of choka because choka had kind of been neglected for most for many centuries and uh, uh, so they saw this uh, this manyo centered uh, uh, approach as as uh, predating court dominance, uh, and out of that came a, a new style, especially with the rise of loyalism, uh, came what is called shishigin or patriots verse, and uh, uh, a lot of it was written by loyalists with very little poetic talent, but boy, did were they passionate! And then so they they poured their passion into their verse. And uh, uh, loyalists were expected to to um, uh, commit their their uh, passion to to this style of verse. And and uh, as I, as I mentioned in in some places in the book, I, I uh, this this presented a a bit of a problem for female loyalists because uh, uh, this. Uh, Patriot verse style was decidedly masculine in tone, and and uh, and women were expected to be a little more delicate, a little more taoyame booty, and and uh, that sort of thing. And so, um, uh, it was difficult for them to to strike the right tone in in uh, writing this kind of verse. Uh, but anyway, uh, also the. Um, the loyalists were tended to be anti-foreign in general, and so they they uh, uh, that's why they liked Waka. It uh, until and pretty much until the Meiji period, uh, uh, Waka used only native diction, Wago. It didn't use Congo uh, at all, and uh, so it was seen as as a uh, as a pure expression of the Japanese spirit. And uh, so that's why uh, composition in it was kind of sacramentalized for these people. And did Boto write a lot of these uh, Patriot verses as well? Uh, she did write some. I'll, I'll have to kind of paraphrase the, the verse. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, uh, put a bookmark in it, I'm afraid. But uh, one, one verse she, she says she wrote to uh, a person... Uh, departing to Kyoto to act as a guard, she said, "If I were one who who uh, uh, bore armor, that is, if I were a man wearing armor, do you think I'd be one step behind you in in uh, performing this duty?" That's paraphrasing it, but that's basically the the uh, in, uh, the sense of the poem. And and uh, so she did she did write uh, a poetry like that, and. Uh, so yeah, I um, well maybe wait a minute maybe I I can let me get my glasses here. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here here is one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Here here that verse is. Uh, Would I arrive even a step after you if I were numbered among those who bear the catalpa bow? Meaning the 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 bow the of uh, a warrior, and uh, another one that she she wrote um, uh, when she um, 
she had a dream and she writes a lot about her dreams uh, and dreams are very important to her but she had a dream about uh, the approach of foreign ships and uh, she wrote uh, even in a dream on a night in spring instead of blossoms an onslaught of foreign ships so uh, she had the, that preoccupation with these kurobune that were were uh, uh, making incursions into Japan and uh, that that was um, that was actually written before her radicalization. But so she did write write uh, uh, write these these kinds of verses. You also uh, talked in the book that uh, the role of the fourth class social structure that we briefly talked about earlier um, in the story of Boto, as well as how her story defies this structure. Can you talk more about this aspect? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, well, I think most of us, uh, when we first started studying Japanese history and so forth, we, we came across this idea of Shino Kosho, uh, the samurai, uh, peasant, artisan, merchant, in descending order, <laughs> supposedly. And, uh, uh, I think a lot of us had came away with the idea that these were were very rigid and that, that they were somehow written into law, and uh, um, of course there was a was a lot of rigidity about the way they were they were uh, practiced, but the, it seems that it was actually more a matter of custom than of law, but it was a very rigid custom nevertheless, and these uh, customs. Uh, started to give way to break down t- uh, toward the Bakumatsu period. Um, uh, you, we find more association between commoners and samurai uh, in many ways. Uh, uh, we find them attending the same schools together, the same academies together, which in an early earlier generations would not have occurred. Uh, we, we see that uh, Boto herself... Uh, studied Waka under Kotomichi, who was from the merchant class, and she was very devoted to him. And uh, she she took students, poetry students herself, from different classes. So there there was this uh, kind of fraying of of this of these uh, this social class structure, um, and uh, of course a lot of uh, commoners were were being given the privilege of using surnames and carrying swords. There's some evidence that a few of the wealthy merchants even purchased that privilege, but so it was, uh, but they were supposed to have been given the privilege because of some meritorious deed, but anyway. Uh, And also uh, uh, toward the end of the period, we see uh, commoners uh, fighting in militias. The, uh, The Shinsengumi, the Shinsengumi included uh, numerous uh, commoners that were recruited from among peasants and other commoner groups. And, and uh, in the Choshu domain, uh, 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 Takasugi's uh, Kiheitai also uh, recruited a lot of, uh, of commoners. So uh, there was a, a breakdown of these social classes toward the end of the period. And, and, and Boto uh, illustrates that in many ways. Yeah, Shinsengumi is actually the reason I got into Japanese studies, which oh, is such really? a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> not, not nearly as interesting as Boto's story. <laughs> <laughs> um, in your book, uh, the role of gender is another very important theme, because during the time that Boto lived, um, well, there probably weren't many women like her to get um, this involved in publishing or taking disciples or voicing their political views. So could you maybe tell us more about uh, this part? Well, uh, of course, uh, from the Manyoshu period onward, uh, there was never a period when women didn't compose uh, waka. They, they always did. But... Uh, from the medieval period on, uh, figures like Abutsuni and and uh, those those figures from from about her time until uh, 
nearly the 19th century, even though women composed plenty, lots of waka, they, they weren't as visible. They, they, they were not uh, publishing collections. They, they, uh, uh, they, uh, they're, they didn't have as much of a public role in, 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 uh, waka composition. And, uh, and th- this also changed toward the end of the Tokugawa period. You had, uh, you have the appearance of, of, uh, a number of women who were very prominent as poets and, uh, who, who, uh, did, uh, teach and they even taught a man as, as, uh, uh, Boto herself did, and and in an earlier generation that that would have been uh, highly unlikely. But uh, in it wasn't it wasn't unheard of in in her in her period. So uh, it, it, you couldn't say it was commonplace, but it was it was not unheard of. Nobody was really shocked by it anymore. That's fascinating. Um... What about the atmosphere of that time that may have influenced her writings? Um, we you mentioned briefly in the book, um, and there recently have been studies about this uh, uh, Milan and Ren atmosphere, where uh, we have uh, these events such as the Ejanaika dance, where people got in the streets, they were chanting about the end of the world. Um, and this was sort of an atmosphere that lasted until after even the Meiji Restoration. So how did such an environment shape or impact both those writings? Um, well, I, I, uh, I quote Victor Turner, who is uh, very well known as a cultural anthropologist, and, and uh, he, he's written a lot about this phenomenon, which he calls liminality, and liminality is uh, is trans transgressing the limon uh, that is uh, 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 challenging the the norms and practices of of the uh, of the old regime, and in this case, the old regime would have been the shogunate itself. But um, anyway, uh, these. Uh, these times come about in a period of perceived crisis. People, people, uh, uh, there's kind of a crisis mentality that that pervades society, and uh, a certain element of society wants to uh, reclaim, go back to uh, some primal uh, state of purity, and uh, you certainly see that in a lot of. Uh, it was given uh, an, a kind of intellectual foundation by much kokugaku writing, uh, but um, uh, Turner also says that that, uh, that people in this state tend to use utilize liminoid genres, uh, such uh, literary genres, and and uh, uh, for Boto, I think that uh, waka was that kind of liminoid genre. That uh, uh, she uh, she combined a historical time with mythical time, and especially in her case, I think you could say oniric time—that is, dream time—because she placed so much emphasis on dreams, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the opening lines of of uh, of. Uh, her diary, the counting of dreams, counting dreams. It uh, it resonates throughout the entire diary, and uh, and you, you can sense this this that she felt this impending change, huge structural changes uh, that were uh, imminent, and uh, and that that affected her writing, especially. Uh, during her incarceration and and uh, and her remaining years in Choshu, you see it especially there. She she um, uh, her last uh, collection of poetry, the Boshu Diary. It's very millennialist in tone. It's it's as if she expected a whole new world to open up <laughs> uh, with the fall of the uh, of the uh, shogunate. So. 
so she was very um, active in participating in these political um, events, and she also, as you mentioned earlier, um, actively voiced her opinions about these events. How did she write about it? And do you see any transformations in her writing throughout the throughout time? Uh, well, yes, there are definitely transformations. I think her writing could be uh, uh, put into three periods. Uh, the, the her uh, uh, her earliest period uh, when she began her tutelage uh, under Kotomichi uh, until. Until Kotomichi's depart, departure to uh, uh, Kyoto and uh, her husband's death, uh, that that first period, uh, her her poetry was, I wouldn't say conventional because uh, uh, it it was uh, it it uh, was unique. It was unlike Kotomichi's in many ways, in many ways, but. Uh, it uh, she had a, a distinctive style, and and it was uh, the poetry from that period is very good, and I, I include m- many translations from it in in my book. Uh, then uh, the period of of her uh, uh, um, political awakening, I guess you'd say, up through her uh, incarceration, uh, is another period. Uh, uh, there, there is a noted stylistic change there, shift. Uh, you can see she's much more pro- preoccupied with, uh, with the, the Tenjin cult, the, the cult of, of uh, Michizane. And uh, she, she ob- observes those things with much more fastidiousness. And uh, uh, that's all tied in with her, her, uh, her growing political vision. And then the third phase would be uh, her remaining years in, in uh, Choshu, where uh, her, uh, her poetry and her writing is, is very millenarian in tone. So uh, you can see those shifts through, through her, throughout her writing. With the, this much writing, um, what kind of legacy do you think she left? Well, she left a very, a very diverse one. Uh, actually, a lot of uh, Bakumatsu figures have have uh, been treated uh, in uh, historical fiction, film, plays, and uh, a lot of them have uh, Yoshida Shoin, for example, uh, Saigo Takamori. Uh, all of those figures they they've been. Uh, repeatedly portrayed, and and uh, their their portrayal has changed with each age to to suit different audiences' tastes and demands and and worldviews. And in that sense, uh, uh, Boto is is no different. I could I think, but but in 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 at least one uh, respect, she is very different, and that is. Uh, uh, the way she was treated had as much to do with with the fact that she was a woman as it had to do with uh, changing tastes of audience. And uh, I think that uh, you can see that in in a number of instances. Uh, uh, for example, uh, just a few years after her death, uh, there was a um, an account of her life, a brief account, just a few paragraphs. Uh, Kinsei Seigi Jinmei Zoden, Illustrated Biographies of Latter-day Champions of Justice that came out in 1874. That was just years after her death. But, uh, and it, it's from that that the cover of the book is, <laughs> uh, is taken from that. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, it's it's interesting that in that that account she's identified as the wife of Saratsura, her husband, and as the the grandmother of Habuku, her grandson. So, as if she could only derive her identity from the men in her life. But the 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 interesting thing is that. Uh, uh, readers would not have known who those men were and uh the the uh it 
the po poem that is cited in that work isn't even her poem. It's someone else's poem. And so it, it gives very scant treatment of her. So it, it gives hardly any idea of, of who she was. Uh, and then in the uh, in later works, uh, Meiji through Taisho, uh, we see we see a lot of emphasis on on uh, well, yeah, she was an activist, and yeah, she did all of these things, but she was also thoroughly grounded in the traditional feminine arts of of poetry. They mention poetry as if that's uh, an exclusively feminine art, and uh, uh, and sewing and uh, uh, flower arranging and tea ceremony. She was good at all of those things too, as as if as if uh, that were necessary to justify her her being involved in, as an activist as well. So uh, uh, that that was kind of interesting. The the uh, uh, a lot of later Taisho works uh, also uh, portray her as kind of a. Uh, a nurturing figure to the loyalists. She was sort of their mom, you know. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, they some of them even called her uh, Shishi no Haha, the mother to the loyalists. So she was uh, she was this uh, mother figure to them, and uh, so uh, we see that in in some Taisho uh, period uh, treatments of her. Uh, as as we move into the uh, war years and the rise of milita militarism, of course, uh, she takes upon a, a much more martial uh, aspect in those works, and she appears in in uh, numerous uh, school readers for the period as as uh, uh, to inspire the women of Japan. See, you can be as valiant as she was, and. Uh, the, the treatments after the war, uh, the post-war period, are interesting. They they um, uh, they they uh, portray her as more of a peacemaker. The, they they put less emphasis on on uh, the martial aspects, uh, and uh, one in particular, uh, Morota Reiko. Uh, I, I've, I'm impressed with her writing. She's she's a, a, a tremendously uh, talented novelist, but uh, her treatment of of uh, Boto, uh, <laughs> she introduces a lot of amorous elements into it. Uh, one of the lo uh, one of the uh, loyalists that uh, she associated with um, uh, was. Um, Let's see, I don't, if I can find a, a place here, I can maybe read a, a line or two from it. Uh, yeah, when she, uh, in, in um, Moroto's account, when she goes to uh, Choshu uh, for, in her remaining years, she meets uh, uh, Takasugi's uh, concubine. And... <laughs> Oh, and she actually did. In that that part of it is historical, but uh, in this account, she kind of became a mentor to to this uh, concubine, and uh, um, she um, Ouno, who is the name of the concubine, says, "Strange, this hand of yours," and. Uh, Boto says, I too once had my hand squeezed like this, or rather, I was the one who first extended the hand. It really did lighten my heavy heart. Oh, whose hand did you squeeze? A neighbor's, a fellow loyalist, someone I was in love with. And this was after her husband's death, of course. But but even so, uh, just, just introducing that uh, entirely fictitious amorous element uh, uh, I mean, it works as fiction, but <laughs> but it takes a lot of liberties if you're uh, from the historical account. And then uh, Boto has also appeared in a couple of uh, uh, Taiga dora uh, dorama uh, that have, that have aired, and uh, um, also I might mention in the 
in the Taisho period, there were a couple of uh, non-historical features that, that were portrayed that have been kind of found their way almost into into a sort of historical treatments. The idea that uh, Gesho visited her, which there, there's no there's no basis for that at all, or that Saigo Takamori visited her at her hermitage. There's no basis for that, but but this this uh, myth started that that uh, Boto was responsible for bringing Takasugi Shinsaku and Saigo Takamori together, and that made for the Sacho Dome, uh, uh, the 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 alliance between Satsuma and Choshu, and of course that's entirely fictitious, but there there seem to be some people who seriously. St- believe that that happened because of uh, these works of fiction so anyway she's had a very a very diverse uh, uh, legacy she does indeed um it's it's yeah i think it's quite a pity how um female historical figures have been treated <laughs> in scholarships or even on media so i guess at least all these uh fictionalization about her is better than hollywood making a movie of her <laughs> casting a white actress or something but uh in the introduction part you briefly talked about problems with writings on female historical figures um, other than these problems that we've just talked about, what else are there? And how does your book deal with these problems when writing about Boto? Well, uh, actually, I'm not confident that I, I will uh, satisfy every reader in this respect. But, uh, but uh, the, the problems are various. One, one is, is a, a lack of uh, pioneering studies on the lives of samurai women now there there have been some very good studies in english on on uh, women of the bakumatsu uh there's uh ann walthall's uh work on um and uh, also uh laura nenzi uh, her work on uh kurosawa tokiko uh but uh those both of those works treat women of the commoner class, and uh, uh, a number of, of writers, Japanese uh, critics as well, have have noted that uh, uh, treatments of of uh, early modern women have not been that plentiful to begin with, and 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 most of them that that there are have uh, focused on commoners, and. Uh, here I was treating a woman of the samurai class, so that uh, that uh, brought in a whole different dimension. Um, and also, there's there's the the problem of how to deal with uh, deal with problems of the age that women faced. Uh, you know, striking a right balance with a, a tendency. Uh, in some writing, you you see what I think is a tendency to kind of exaggerate or or hyperbolize, as if every woman in Japan from the period uh, was was haunted by the onna daigaku and so forth. And and uh, Boto certainly wasn't, <laughs> and she even came from the domain that it that it uh, purportedly uh, sprang from, you know. Uh, but she obviously was not, and uh, uh, I, I find that that a lot of these accounts really beg for more nuance, you know. But on, on the other hand, I don't want to to minimize uh, the the trials, the the difficulties that women of the period faced. Um, well, every it was a very oppressive regime, and, and it wasn't. It, it was oppressive for everyone, uh, re, uh, men and women. But women had their own peculiar difficulties that they faced. Um, anyway, uh, there's uh, uh, there is also this this. Uh, I'm not sure that I. I tried preemptively anticipating uh, accusations from some readers that, that I haven't consulted this or that feminist critic. Um, and again, I, I approached um, I approached Boto initially as a person, as a poet. And uh, 
uh, her uh, her uh, gender was secondary to that, uh, but uh, and and I think that uh, her her uh, her accomplishments uh, stand on their own merit. Uh, they they, uh, uh, but. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some people will will be dissatisfied that I didn't consult this or that school of thought, but um, but I, I do I do uh, uh, I do try to uh, throughout the book uh, uh, look at at uh, uh, the problems the the, the um, that are posed by her gender and uh, that that in in travel and in um, in uh, various activities that she she engaged in so uh, anyway i'll find out when i see the reviews <laughs> whether i'm for what it's worth i definitely thought um your your angles uh looking into her poems and diaries and taking all things into account i didn't think it was um, it would have needed too much theoretical support, especially from feminist theories. Um, but well, uh, it's, it's, perhaps... it's, it's reassuring to hear that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and I, I certainly hope to see more studies like this that can look into female historical fi- figures from more various angles. Um, rather than relying solely on theories, for that matter. But yeah, thank you so much for this um, wonderful conversation. It was very thought-provoking. Well, thank you. And uh, for our listeners, to learn more about Bodo's adventurous life, make sure you check out this new book by Dr. Roger Thomas, Counting Dreams, The Life and Writings of the Loyalist Nan Nomura Boto. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon.